Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. And we're very glad that you have joined us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. And we're brought to you by the Bradley Foundation and the Conceived in Liberty Bradley Speaker Series. For more information, go to bradleyfdn.org slash liberty and uh, catch their latest in their series of engaging 15-minute interviews examining the key issues of the day. And we'll talk about the latest guests that they have in just a moment. So, Jim, our good martini today is that someone is actually going to be prosecuted for property destruction when it comes to the tearing down of statues uh, this summer. This goes back to June 10th where a Confederate monument was torn down in Portsmouth, Virginia, and destroyed. This one took on a little bit of a a different uh, approach, though, because I believe this is the one that actually fell on someone and seriously injured them. I'm not sure that is factoring into why the charges are coming, but uh, as WAVY News reports, uh, the police have been taking their time collecting evidence and actually putting together a case And here's what WAVY says. Portsmouth Police Chief Angela Green announced during a Monday afternoon press conference that State Senator Louise Lucas has been charged with two felonies for an incident at the city's Confederate monument on June 10th. She, among others, is facing charges of conspiracy to commit a felony and injury to a monument in excess of $1,000. Thirteen other people, uh, to be specific, have been charged here, including a member of the Portsmouth School Board, three Portsmouth NAACP representatives, and three public defenders. Jim, uh, these are the people who are supposed to be uh, setting the example in our communities. Not so much, and looks like there could be actual consequences here. Yeah, you know, yesterday I had a chance to catch up with an old friend formerly of National Review named David French. We talked about a whole bunch of topics. We talked about whether the the pandemic restrictions were always, how long was reasonable to expect America to, to follow them? And whether at some point people were just destined to get tired of this and to say, no, I'm not staying in my house. No, I'm not going to keep my business closed. I'm tired of you telling me what to do, et cetera. And I think we, we talked about the protests and we talked about how glaring it was first not to enforce restrictions on crowd size. In the case of Phil Murphy, he violated his own executive order on get, attending a large gathering. But then when it turned violent, then when you saw you know the protests turn to riots, turn to looting, and how little we saw prosecution of vandalism and other properties and things like that. The moment that happened, Lots of Americans who other who I think genuinely wanted to do the right thing, who want to uh, help their country, who don't want to take crazy risks, looked at this and said, OK, this is all a joke. This is clearly a joke because they're not prosecuting actual crimes, but they're threatening to prosecute me if I go out and don't wear a mask or if I go into a supermarket without wearing a mask. Um, you and I talked about Arlington County and the gatherings of more than three people. Um, that, that basically there seemed like this ludicrous double standard that the cops were not going to enforce the law on people who were breaking the law in, in violent ways, uh, but who would enforce it in this. Seeing this is reassuring. Um, I'd like to see the entire Democratic Party um, disown this state senator. I'm not going to hold my breath on that. I'm not going to hold my breath on the payback at the ballot box, although I guess we'll see. But it's kind of a, it's good to see that no one is above the law and that it doesn't matter if you think you're acting in the name of a noble cause. If you commit property damage, if you commit vandalism, you will be investigated, you will be prosecuted, and we will see if the state senator ends up paying a price in terms of uh, fines or prison time or anything else like that. 
Yeah, this is lawlessness, obviously. Uh, whatever your position is on what statues should stay, which ones should go, which ones should have more clarifying information, perhaps, there's a process for doing that. Could be at the state level. I know that there had been at least a, uh, I think there still is, a state policy on certain monuments. It has to go through the state level. Others uh, can be decided at the uh, local level. Different street names named after people from whatever area in our history. And so regardless of whether you like the decisions, there is a process for that. Just showing up with spray paint and, and ropes to yank stuff down is not the way it's supposed to go. And so finally, someone is actually doing something about it. So we'll see what the actual resolution of the case is, but uh, this is a good first step. Um, Jim, let's talk about our great sponsor today, the Bradley Foundation. Uh, we've talked about them a number of times and uh, their excellent work in the Conceived in Liberty Bradley Speaker Series, because making sense of current events, whether it's what we just talked about or the fan fiction you're seeing at the Democratic National Convention, which we'll talk about a little bit later, figuring out what's going on right now can be a little bit difficult. And that's where the Conceived in Liberty Bradley Speaker Series comes in. This is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging 15-minute interviews. You can visit Bradley fdn.org slash liberty to watch their most recent episode featuring Mitch Daniels, president of Purdue University. Uh, those of us in the political realm know that Daniels is a former governor of Indiana, previous director of the Office of Management and Budget during the Bush 43 era, and a 2013 winner of the Bradley Prize. In this episode, you'll learn more about why Purdue is one of the first universities to announce its intentions to reopen, and hear some encouraging news about students' response to returning. He also addresses the loneliness crisis among younger people and offers guidance to federal and state leaders on managing the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to our YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. Jim, Mitch Daniels, kind of a throwback, cutting the mold of a person we used to like where they were kind of boring, stayed out of your way, and made government smaller and your tax bill lower. You know, Greg, I had one chance to spend a significant amount of time with Mitch Daniels. It was approaching the 2012 presidential election. Mitch Daniels was thinking about running for office, uh, came out to Washington, spent some time with some uh, conservative bloggers and writers. And I walked away unbelievably impressed with just how much he knew every little detail of minutia, kind of the clarity of his thinking, his ability to prioritize, to recognize uh, kind of the offsetting consequences of policy decisions. This was the guy I had absolute total faith in to make good decisions if he were to become president of the United States. I also thought he would probably be very difficult to elect president of the United States, in part because he was so calm, rational, even-tempered, and not the kind of guy who can pound the table and be very, very entertaining. Hey, you know what? When you want competence, you want to go to Mitch Daniels. My colleague and friend, Jane Orlinger, has talked to him a bunch of times. You, you don't interview Mitch Daniels without learning like a half dozen things you did not know going into that interview. Oh, that's fantastic. But, you know, as far as the mild-mannered uh, politician, Tim Pawlenty was in that race, and there's just room for so many, right? <laughs> I mean, it's tough to overcome the generic Republican when you're running up against the generic Republican known as Tim Pawlenty. All right. Well, that's uh, hearkening back to uh, Republican opportunities uh, gone by the wayside in years past. Uh, let's talk about this year's uh, convention season. Jim, um, 
weirdly, not a lot of mention of the riots in the streets at the uh, Democratic National Convention, at least on the first two nights. Maybe they'll start endorsing Antifa over the next couple of nights, but so far we haven't gotten that. We've gotten really glossy portraits, not only of the Bidens, but of the vision that the Democrats will bring to America. It's all going to be sunshine and roses, uh, dogs and cats getting along with each other. It's going to be amazing, uh, unlike the carnage in the streets that we're seeing in so many American cities. But uh, I'm sure we'll hear more about the Democrats and their role in that next week at the Republican convention. But last night is what you and I are referring to as old-timer night at the Democratic National Convention. Not only are they nominating Joe Biden, who's been around for half a century pretty much uh, in Washington, but they trotted out some of their graybeards. And it's also kind of, a, a, I think, a warning to us that, you know, we're not the kids that we used to be because Bill Clinton was looking old, uh, John Kerry was looking old, and a couple others were as well. Uh, this is going to be kind of a, a two-fisted uh, bad martini here. But let's start with Kerry, uh, the former senator. Of course, he was the uh, Democrats' nominee in 04. And then for the second half of the Obama administration, he was Secretary of State. So he came on to talk about national security, why Trump is terrible, why Biden would be great. And here's the first 30 seconds of his message. See if you can have any fingers left by the time you're done counting the falsehoods. Here we go. Hi, I'm John Kerry. For the eight years of the Obama-Biden administration, we led by example. We eliminated the threat of an Iran with a nuclear weapon. We built a 68-nation coalition to destroy ISIS. We forged a 195-nation agreement to attack climate change. We stopped Ebola before it became a pandemic. Donald Trump inherited a growing economy and a more peaceful world. And like everything else he inherited, he bankrupted it. He was right that he's John Kerry. Uh, after, huh. after that, he said uh, the eight years. There were eight years of, of Obama. I checked that part. That uh, well, that's true. Know. But he was only there. there. He was only there for four of it. Then he says that mm -hmm. they stopped Iran. He says that they defeated ISIS, and uh, I think he thinks he actually accomplished something on the climate change front. So, uh, what do you make of John Kerry's performance? You know the 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 part of me that is a that thinks back to the Kerry spot days. My first, you know, full-time work for National Review will always have a soft spot in my heart for John Kerry. Um, he was just so easy to make fun of. He was just so uh, haughty, I believe was the term that they like to use. I guess the feelings, if you're, if you're Joe Biden, you've all the, the entire Democratic Party is, is just, you know, itching to do whatever they can to help you become the next president of the United States. Do you really want John Kerry? And do you really want John Kerry, his opening lead argument to be that we stopped Iran from getting nuclear? Not really. No, you made them promise to not pursue a nuclear weapon for about 11, 12 years. And after that, they could do whatever the heck they wanted. And so they're allowed to keep researching nuclear energy. They're allowed to do all kinds, all kind of dual use stuff was hunky dory. And in exchange, they got all the uh, all kinds of uh, sanctions off. Their economy got recharged. Lots of money coming in. And of course, the suspicion was amongst, amongst a whole bunch of people, they were going to continue doing their research, wait out this deal. I mean, the idea, the, the, plan, the problem with the Iran deal was, well, they're going to promise to not uh, research anything. We, we can't inspect. We, we, can, we can't go to look in their military facilities. We have kind of taken on faith. And we will hope that sometime between now and 11 years down the road, either they've had regime change, either they've changed the nature of the mullahs and their philosophy and their attitude towards the use of nuclear weapons, or just something better will happen. Something will change that will make Iran not the menace that they are to the rest of the Middle East. I mean, I suppose, here's the thing. We're being really tough on them, Greg, but I guess we could say, we, we haven't probably given the John Kerry and the Obama administration a little bit of credit 
they probably did get is Israel and like the UAE together and a whole bunch of Arab regimes to look at, you know, the idea of a rising Iran and say, huh, this is really terrible for us. This is a giant menace to us. Maybe we don't need to be as hostile to the Israelis as we used to. And now we're seeing a little bit of movement in that direction. That's uh, maybe one of the most significant steps towards Middle East peace that most people thought would never come in, in quite some time. So completely by accident. Good job, John Kerry. This was one of the consequences of your really bad policy decision. I guess that's like the inspector gadget version of foreign policy, right? Yes. Completely <laughs> what you never intended to happen, but it worked out. All right. Let's t- <laughs> let's talk about the rest of the convention. Uh, like we said, a lot of graybeards. Uh, there's a couple more Republicans on board. Cindy McCain didn't specifically say in her voiceover that she was voting for Biden, but I think we had seen stories to that effect that if he was the nominee, she would be. And you know, given uh, the back and forth between the Trump and the McCains, I think that shocks no one. Uh, Chuck Hagel is on board with uh, Biden. He's also looking pretty long in the tooth. And obviously, a lot of these folks have been around a long time. Uh, also, Bill Clinton relegated to the first of the two hours in primetime, which means the broadcast networks didn't get him. I'm not sure, Jim, if that was the original plan or because uh, he was speaking the same day that the uh, Daily Mail published photos of him getting a massage, fully clothed, but still getting a massage from one of Jeffrey Epstein's sex slaves. So what do you uh, what do you make of this? Yeah. By the way, if anyone's saying, hey, doesn't this sound like the sort of thing Jim and Greg would usually use as a crazy martini? Yes. Yes, it is. And this is our way of shoehorning in an extra special uh, second one. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you could say there's a little bit of a snub of Bill Clinton by putting him in the nine o'clock hour uh, and not on major network television. Uh, I wrote about this in the corner yesterday that, that you know, first of all, it's been 20 years since uh, Bill Clinton has been president. He's, he's not as relevant to the discussion of national politics as he used to be. And a major reason that he continued to be a major factor in politics after he left office was Hillary Clinton. Well, CBS News had asked people, uh, Democrats, who, who are you looking forward to speaking at the Democratic National Convention? And the two lowest, other than John Kasich, which is kind of understandable because John Kasich is not a Democrat, the second lowest was Hillary Clinton and the lowest one was Bill Clinton. The Democratic Party has, by and large, moved on from the Clintons. So, you know, it was, and so yesterday I asked the question, there's, there's no law that says that a party has to have the former president speak at their convention. Uh, neither Bush spoke at uh, in Cleveland in 2016, owing to a pretty glaring disagreement with Donald Trump. Looking back, I'm fairly certain Jimmy Carter didn't speak at a couple of the Democratic conventions. You know, there's nothing that says that Democrats had to do this. They chose to do this. And in light of the Me Too scandals and in light of the Jeffrey Epstein stuff, you would have a perfectly good reason to, to say, no, we're not going to have him this year. We're just going to skip over him. They didn't. It was five minutes. And naturally, uh, Greg, Bill Clinton chose to attack Donald Trump for being inappropriate in the Oval Office. <laughs> I saw that. A lot of projection going on with the Democrats this year. You know, that that one takes the cake, though. Um, one thing I do like, Jim, though, is the the fact that these videos make these people who are normally extraordinarily and painfully long-winded have to keep it to about five minutes. Uh, that might be something that sticks around in, in future cycles. Yeah. I, I look, you know, if you're going to put up with them, this is – first of all, you look at this and you begin to realize how many of these the, – the, the, the shoehorning – an entire day and night's worth of material into trying to do it into two hours in prime time with no live audience. You know, it shows just how much of that is, you know, what I call the Whitney Houston speeches. I believe that children are the future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. You know, that kind of stuff. That, you know, that generally what's going on there is the party saying, okay, this senator's important. We don't really care. He's not a great speaker, but 
his state matters. We can't make him feel like he's snubbed. So there you go. You get to speak at 730 or something like that. And in this case, you know, almost everybody gets gets nothing or, or you appear as part of a montage, you know, and that's uh, that's not what they want. But at least they have a recognition that uh, the audience uh, you know, uh, uh, interest is limited. And a lot of this is going to be check the box. Bill Clinton, you got five minutes. Boom, go. All right, next on to the next one. Yeah, at least it keeps things moving. And we'll, we'll see if the Republicans are taking notes and decide to emulate this strategy uh, next week as well. All right. Well, let's talk about our official crazy martini now because uh, Clinton, Clinton speaking the very same day those photos came out, is pretty darn crazy. But uh, we've got one that we think uh, really deserves the cake. Jim, we briefly mentioned yesterday that uh, President Trump uh, kind of teased the, the press corps saying he's a uh, very famous pardon is coming on Tuesday. And like, oh, it's going to be Flynn. Oh, it's going to be Manafort. This is disgraceful. Nope. Susan B. Anthony for illegally voting back in the 1870s. And so it's the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote. Uh, uh, he did a good job of uh, teasing uh, attention to what was going to happen there. Might not have gotten as much attention if he just was going to have a uh, commemoration event. But uh, we can't just have reaction to the fact that the president did this. We can't have reaction, which I, I thought would be something to the effect of, oh, Trump's doing this, but his real record on women is blah, blah, blah. No, we can't just do that either. Susan B. Anthony has to go. Susan B. Anthony has to be canceled now. The New York Times, she is also an increasingly divisive figure adopted by anti-abortion forces and criticized for relegating black suffragists to the sidelines. She was an abolitionist and the person who spearheaded the right to vote for women, Jim. But somehow, because she wasn't in favor of abortion a hundred years before Roe v. Wade and didn't apparently put black women at the head of the uh, voting rights movement, that she has to be canceled. This is not the first one either. We've already had to cancel Mount Rushmore and the Founding Fathers. So apparently there's no end of this in sight. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, my first thought, you know, when I heard the news, was like, eh, okay. When, you know, Trump promises a, you know, major significant pardon, you know, Susan B. Anthony was probably not the first name that jumped to people's minds. Um, you and I had complained about the possibility of it being Edward Snowden earlier in the week, so I'm really glad it wasn't that. And okay, all right, that's you know, nice little symbolism there, and you know, nice uh, one day news story. Eh, good idea, Mr. President. Good for you. And you almost wonder if he had put it out as bait. And as you said, the you know, Trump's pardoning Susan B. Anthony. But, you know, his real record, on, as you said, is exactly what I expect. I, I should say, though, it's not that nobody uh, was all that jazzed about it or excited. Uh, Greg, you know who really loved the uh, pardon of Susan B. Anthony? Who? The Susan B. Anthony List, the <laughs> yes. pro-life organization that has her name, got a really happy press release from her. They were thrilled. They were very impressed. So, uh, But by and large, I figured this would be a blip of a news story. And the, the funny thing is, it's like, you know, it's like like you can picture some sort of, I don't know, fruit or meat or something hanging from a branch with a net underneath it. You can see the trap. And some folks on the left walked right into it and said, Susan B. Anthony. They decided they hated this suffragette abolitionist who, you know, had to be the worst person in the whole life. So if, the, if people do notice this and it becomes one more point of the, oh, my goodness, these, you know, woke scolds are just utterly insufferable, then maybe the president did know what he was doing with this. And it was, it was a... Uh, more astute political move than it may have initially appeared. Or it may just be that this is just how the Democrats respond to everything he does, and they've just long since lost the ability to evaluate whether, hey, is it, you know, if a broken clock can be right twice a day, 
is it possible Donald Trump did something right in this one? The liberal outlet Now This actually put out a video later in the day entitled Why Susan B. Anthony Doesn't Deserve Your I Voted Stickers. And it goes to the same things that the New York Times mentioned. So uh, basically... Do we have anything else going on that would, these people could be upset about? Is there is, is all the rest of the problems are solved? Are we good? Is that what it is? Okay. Thanks, people. Here's my only beef with Susan B. Anthony, and it's not her fault. It's the Susan B. Anthony dollar, and the problem mm. wasn't that they gave her a dollar. It was that it was too close to the size of a quarterback in the day. I know they're not really much in circulation anymore, so this is a little bit dated for younger folks. But, Jim, how many times did you screw up a vending machine, or did somebody screw up a vending machine because they popped in a Susan B. Anthony dollar, which the machine didn't recognize, thinking that it was a quarter? Yeah, the first thing is if you're going to do a uh, – if you're going to make a dollar coin, go for it. I know we did the Sacagawea, you know, golden dollar coins a little while ago. One of these days, if we want to have dollar coins, and I, I can understand a lot more things that cost a dollar than they used to, hey, let's do it. But let's commit to this. None of this on, off, you know, up and down again. And the other thing is I'm looking at the, the image of it, Greg. I guess it was round. But something about the way they carved it made it look like it had corners around the edges. And I just, I'm kind of like, no, no, we, our, our coins should be round. Uh, maybe I'm a traditionalist that way. I want my coins to be round. And, you know, even if it's just an optical illusion by the line around it, the idea of it being this, what is it, nine-sided, odd shape? It's just, just, just not what it ought to be. No, exactly. And I remember back in college, uh, I had a friend who owed me, I don't know, 15, 20 bucks, paid me back in Susan B. Anthony coins, which I was not too happy about. <laughs> hey, I want American money, pal. Well, it's American money, but merchants don't know what to do with this thing. And I grew up in Michigan where you get some Canadian coins once in a while because you're right there on the border and, and the vending machines get screwed up with those too. But uh, it's it's hard to get rid of Susan B. Anthony dollars. Uh, to. <laughs> To actually spend those because nobody knows what to do with them. But uh, it I, says right there on the the money, this is good for all debts, public and private. Nobody, nobody should be saying, "Oh, I don't take that." You know, is it American money? Then you take it. There you go. I'd say is it green, but our our, our dollars are less green than they used to be. Yes, that's true. All right. Well, we're not canceling Susan B. Anthony, but we are glad that there are charges for property destruction on the on the on the statue desecration. So we're seeing a little bit of progress here, Jim. We'll see what the convention and their other uh, news gives us tomorrow. Talk to you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to check out the Bradley Speaker Series, Conceived in Liberty. Visit bradleyfdn.org slash liberty. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Also, we would be very grateful for a five-star rating and a kind review. And don't forget you can get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.